Welcome to Know My Faith, and my guest once again is Jay McCall. Jay, good to be talking to you again. It's wonderful to be back. I want to talk about just before we get into the into the topic, and we're going to look at um, we're going to look at phrases that Jesus used, and what the what the, the Galileans, what the disciples would have understood them uh, to mean. But before we get into that, tell me about this film, uh, Eating with the is it Eating with the Enemy or Before the Wrath? It seems to have two titles. Actually, they're they're uh, they're related to each other. Um, Before the Wrath just came out, of course, last year, and uh, it was extremely popular. Uh, I, I've never quite seen anything like it, and I'm standing on the outside looking in. But I provided uh, most of the source material for it, actually, pretty much all of it, and uh, wrote the background book for it, which just was released. It's a year and a half late, but it finally came out. Uh, but eating with the enemy is. Um, based on the Last Supper. And it's not about the Passover portion of the Last Supper, but more what happened to John 13, which, of course, skips all the elements and the ceremonial aspects of it and goes into other details. And it's based on a presentation that I do that, uh, I, for lack of a better term, I just call it a biblical dinner. I've tried to come up with a clever name. I have never been able to do that since 1998. So we just call it a biblical dinner because it deals with feasts uh, that happened uh, in ancient times and within the Bible. When you see, when you go through a feast and you read the Bible, you go, oh, I, I see what they're talking about here. Um, but when you go through what a feast is and then you look at the Last Supper and especially John 13, suddenly it just makes sense. Yeah. There's nothing mysterious about it. And as a matter of fact, for the people who would have read it the first time, it's extremely hard hitting. So uh, throughout this presentation, I deal with manners and customs and all of that. But eventually we get into the shape of the table and how people actually would have eaten at the table, which is nothing like we Westerners do. Yeah, Uh, It would have been a table called a triclinium. They would have eaten on the floor in a position called the reclining position. Uh, Based on what the narrative of the scripture tells us, the record is right in front of us. We know that we can identify where four of the men sat at the Last Supper. And there are lessons with each one. John, Jesus, Judas, and Peter. We can all we can identify where all four of these fellows were. But the relationship between Jesus and Judas, and then Jesus and Peter, are very interesting because they're quite similar, and yet there's a dramatic contrast in the outcome of that last encounter that Jesus had with Judas. And at least that night, which changed everything, you might call it sort of a last encounter before a new beginning that happened with Peter. That part of it is what this zeroes in on as far as the movie goes. So otherwise, you'd have an epic miniseries, which they didn't want to do. The Chosen is already doing something like that. But um, the preliminary filming was done in Texas. Uh, with uh, half the people in the cast or people from the the miniseries that chose, and it was actually filmed on the same sets. That was very useful. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, just for the recreation parts. But there are uh, talking head experts. I'm one of them. Uh, when I was down there in Texas, I was providing the um, um, the background and the uh, uh, the technical aspects, theologically and historically, of what was going on in the background, coaching the actors on uh, this is what uh, your character, whether it was Jesus or or the Pharisee with the woman washing Jesus' feet, or well, this is what they would have done. This is how they probably would have portrayed it. Uh, and it ha- doesn't have to do with acting coaching, but really what happened back then. So this is what's coming out. Yeah. And it, it it's a message that is so needed within the church. 
It's needed within people's lives, but it's needed within the church. And it's about reconciliation, uh, reconciliation that is received and reconciliation that is rejected when it is offered in the most astounding terms. I can't understate this. It sounds like I'm using very flourishing language, but I'm, it, it goes beyond that. Uh, when Jesus actually um, uh, uh, puts bread in Judas's mouth at one point, uh, that, that's just a, a staggering thing. And uh, if people would understand it and understand that this actually relates to communion uh, as far as, you know, the breaking of bread, the drinking of the cup, but especially the breaking of bread aspect of it, that suddenly reconciliation within the body of Christ to start, but especially there, is enormously powerful and, um, shall we say, doable, where a lot of people think, well, I need to reconcile or I need to be right with each other. We need to love one another, but it's an abstract. These people didn't abstract well. Jesus made it so that they would get it. And it wasn't difficult for them to understand. It might be more difficult for them to do, though. Yeah. That's what this movie is about. It's, uh, I mean, when we talk about these things, we, we run Shabbat evenings um, when we travel around the country. And uh, some people will go, oh, you know, what's a Shabbat evening? And I go, it's a potluck dinner. <laughs> right on. Yeah. You say the term potluck dinner and they understand it straight off. I mean, we talk about Shabbat and we explain the, the, the candles and the challah and the wine and everything, but pretty much it's a gathering of, of believers or gathering of people and we just bring some food for everybody to eat. So culturally, if I say in New Zealand it's a potluck dinner, everybody knows what it means. And this is the thing that we're talking about with, with the, 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 the Last Supper is the disciples understood everything, the people reading the gospel understood what it meant, and but us 2,000 years later, we don't quite get it. We made it very ceremonial, and the ceremony's great, but when you go back further, for instance, um, into um, uh, Justin Martyr, who wrote about 150 AD, was the first one to ever record the nuances of a church service. Now, this is, this is uh, 150 years, or, or 100 years, rather, more uh, removed from the time of, even when the Gospel of Mark was written. So yeah. uh, it, it's way, way uh, into the, into the. it's Hellenized, it's, it's among the Romans, you know. So the culture is not Middle Eastern as much anymore when Justin Martyr writes this, even though he's in that general region. Uh, and what he does is that he, he, even them, even these folks here who were Greeks, removed from the Hebrews, when they partook of communion, they made a huge deal of it. Um, uh, when you read his account, they would go on and on and on about the sacrifice of Jesus. It became the major portion of whatever service that they had. They would have singing. They would have prayer. They would take up an offering. They would uh, get out a scroll of, of the uh, apostles, something that they wrote, whether, you know, one of the letters uh, that Paul wrote or whatever, they read it. The president or the presiding elders, the reason they call them, they translated it as a president, that would be a pastor or a minister or a rector or what have you. Yeah. But the presiding elder, he would expound on that. And then they would always do communion. Now, that's not a mandate that the church do it every single week, but it's not a bad thing to do at all. It's a tremendous thing to do. Um, but they would spend most of their time talking about the sacrifice of Jesus and just praising him in this. This is Justin Martyr's description of it. So it was a tremendous thing, and it meant so much. But by then, it had become, uh, it had started to move into the area of being ceremonious. Yes. And that means that it's, it's uh, something that we always do. But after a while, 
the meaning tends to slip away or at least become so broadened that it becomes this huge abstract. And it's something that we do and we rejoice in. But if we really ask why, I'm having a hard time telling you why. It was a church I was a part of many years ago. And um, at communion, they had the, the, you know, the bread cut up into small pieces and they had the small cups on the trays, but they also had a large chalice and a glass jar full of the wine. And the elder would get up, he would pray over the bread and the wine, and then he would take the jar and he would empty the jar into the chalice, put them both back down on the table, and then distribute the small cups. Interesting. And, and, and so I'm going, I, I said to him, so what is this pouring of the, he goes, well, obviously it's to represent that Jesus poured out all his blood for us. I said, well, it's not that obvious because I had no idea what you were doing. But, you know, it becomes part of the ceremony that we do it. And, and, and again, I mean, this, this comes back to what we're talking about, is that in the first century, in Israel, in Galilee, they understood fully the terminology that's used in the New Testament, but we miss it. Right, right, exactly. If I could elaborate on this point a little bit more. Yeah. Um, uh, during the Last Supper, one of the things that the movie, uh, Eating with the Enemy, uh, is going to center on, is when Jesus is at the Last Supper table, Judas would have been to his left. Now, this is historical. The record actually points us to that if we understand this, the, uh, the customs of those days. So Jesus at the table, Judas to his left, John to his right, Peter across the table. These are the different positions they would have been in. When Jesus announces, one of you here at this table tonight is going to betray me, everybody erupts in outrage. They're shouting. They're, they're, I don't think it's dramatic like you see in the movies where they're very quiet and subdued. These are Middle Easterners, and they're Galileans who tend to be very ornery, as we would say. So uh, some of them are shouting, who is it? Who is it? Tell us who it is. It's like they're going to go beat somebody up. The others are saying, well, is it me? Is it me? Like they have, a, I don't know, a self-esteem problem or something. I don't know. But they're, you know, is it me? And then Finally, Peter, on the other side of the table, managed to catch John's eye. And John, he nods to John, and he says, he motions to him. It literally means he gives a sharp nod like that and says, John, ask him who it is. John, he, probably, he probably just mouthed it like Could be. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I could imagine him doing that. John, who is actually reclining at the table in front of Jesus, leans back into Jesus' chest, the disciple who leaned on Jesus' chest. Tilts his head up, talks to Jesus. I mean, personal space in the Middle East is very, very close. So that's not an awkward thing for them to do. It's a normal thing to do. And he says, Master, who is it? Jesus said, it's the one who dips in the sop with me. At that point, because of the dynamics of the table, the, the, the lowness of the table, which is only about that far off the ground, that Jesus would have had to have straightened himself up the table into either seating or a crouching position picked up a piece of bread, the unleavened bread, the unleavened loaf, which would have been, you know, just like a crepe, torn off a piece and dipped it into the haroset in front of him. And then taken that and reached around to his left with his using his right hand and put it into the mouth of Judas Iscariot. And when he did that, in that those days, and even the customs today among the Bedouin Arabs, because it's not just a Jewish custom, it's a, it's a regional Middle custom. Eastern, yeah. Eastern custom, it sends this message. The message is, you are my brother, and I'd gladly die for you. Just by putting that bread in somebody's mouth. Don't say a word, just put it there. They know. You're saying, you're my brother, and I'd gladly die for you. I honor you. I highly esteem you. I love you. I'm your friend. And in some cases, and this is really significant, it means, I forgive you. 
He puts this in Judas's mouth and immediately Judas gets up and leaves and goes to betray the Lord, which makes the whole scene for a reader in the first century, especially, they would just be absolutely inconsolably outraged by what Judas just did, because it was as if he took that bread and spit it out on the table. Now he didn't, but that would be the, uh, the, the contempt. And that would be such contempt, such shame. Um, you know, people would have murderous thoughts of someone who did that to you when you put bread in their mouth. Yes. Um, an astonishing thing. But what it, you know, Jesus gave Judas every last opportunity all the way to the very end. When Jesus is at the table uh, to repent, to, to here, you can have forgiveness. Yeah. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He said so. Okay, he's God. He's going to know that. He said he, what was going to happen, but still he worked on him until Judas completely abandoned him and went out to do what he was doing. The disciples, they thought he was going out to buy more food or do a good deed. But here's the thing, that with that incredible act of putting bread in another person's mouth to say that you are my brother and I would gladly die for you, this is the greatest honor if you were to sort of add them up. And so you might get some disagreement on it and it's okay. But in the Middle East, even today, it's the greatest honor you could ever do for another person, except for physically dying for them. So this is gigantic. And, and for Judas to go out and betray Jesus on top of having that bread put in his mouth. And then Jesus, uh, presumably earlier in the evening, but again, the timing can be debated, yep. uh, when he takes the bread and he breaks it and he said, this bread means my body, which is for you. Remember what you see here. This makes memories, literally. This makes memories, is what he says. Um, and uh, I want you to remember what I do here. And we say, well, Jesus was broken on the cross and all that. But remember, as the Passover lamb on the cross, not a bone in his body was broken. So his body was broken, but that's an abstraction. What's he talking about? Well, he gets into, I am the bread of life. And he talks about this again a lot in John 6. He goes into a whole sermon on it, which, yeah. which we're very, very perplexed and very uh, concerned about. Jesus and the disciples and all those masses knew what he was saying. Remember yesterday when I fed you all that food? You came here for breakfast this morning. I'm the breakfast. You've got to have me. Bread, you were, you, every time that they fed the five, he fed the 5,000, the 4,000, the accounts that are there, the two, you know, two different feedings, that at the end it said, they all ate and were, same thing, every gospel, they were full. They were full, yeah. Maybe the first time in their life they ever were full. These are peasants who are usually starving. So he feeds them until they can't eat anymore. The 12 baskets full, they would have never abandoned food. I mean, even scraps, they would have taken them home. They, whatever scraps were left, were left because the people who left, the 20,000 people, they couldn't, couldn't eat anymore. Yeah. They, couldn't, they couldn't eat anymore. They couldn't carry anymore home. So the, the 12 baskets full was just absolutely astonishing. And then the next day they show up. There in Capernaum, a long story how Jesus gets her fascinating account, all takes place in 24 hours, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate men in the wilderness. They live. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I mean, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and die. Excuse me. Let's yeah, get right. it right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so and that night he takes the bread, and he holds it up, and he breaks it. And he said, this bread, I, this means my body, which, which is for you. It's like this. And I, I look at it like, okay, God has taken that bread, you know, unleavened bread. We all know what it looks like. And he hands it down to sinful man. And he says, will you take my son, the bread of life? Will you take him into yourself? 
And, and that's a funny thing because in the Middle East, when you eat bread with another person, you're making peace with them. Yes. Uh, for, for instance, you know, uh, yeah, I got, uh, if I had a piece of bread in, in my hand and I could reach through the screen and hand it to you, uh, when I break bread, a piece of bread, I don't have two pieces of bread any more than, for instance, I have my, my mug here with water. If I drop this on the floor, you have one mug on the floor, but it's in a lot of pieces. Yeah. When you break bread, you have one piece of bread. It's merely in two parts. This is their logic. It's not ours. It makes little sense to us, but you break it in half, it's still one piece of bread. I give you one half of the one piece of bread. You eat it. It goes into your body. It becomes part of you. I take the other half of the one piece of bread. I eat it. It goes into my body. It becomes part of me. What went into you and became physically part of you went into me and became physically part of me. What does that make us? It makes us brothers under the skin. And now we're reconciled. And people would break bread in order to reconcile. Kings would break bread in order to end wars. Um, at the uh, After the Camp David Accords were signed by Begin and uh, Sadat with you know uh, President Carter, bringing these guys together on this miraculous document, they signed it, they shook hands, they almost hugged. It was not quite the five close. They got pretty close. And then six weeks later, Sadat and Begin, without Carter, met in Beersheba. And there's a well there that they call Abraham's Well. It's a, whether it was Abraham's or not, but it's an, it's an amazing place. I've been there. And they built a platform over the top, and Sadat and Begin, who are Semitic cousins, took a piece of bread, tore it in half, broke it, ate it, and that sealed the deal. But that didn't make any headlines. It didn't that make was any probably deal. more binding than Camp David. Absolutely, because a signature on a piece of paper means very little. A handshake, forget it. But you break bread, you're now brothers. And even though those two men are dead, that thing still sits there, that, that, that Camp David Accord. So here's God, and he takes this bread, bread of light Jesus, and he hands him down to us. And he says, take my son, take him into yourself. If you do, then you and I will we'll be one. That's an abstract. Wait a second. Jesus shows us how it really works. He breaks the bread. And then he takes it, gives it to his disciples, and he says, eat it, all of you. God takes now the broken bread of Jesus, Jesus' body broken for us, hands him down to us, and he says, will you take this broken bread, will you take it into your life, him into your life? And if you do take him, he becomes part of you, and you become part of me. And the quarrel that I had against you for your sin, I will personally forget for all eternity. Now, when they did this at the Last Supper, and they did this among the disciples celebrating communion, they realized that this is an act of uh, not only a picture of what Jesus did, as far as his death and yes. his, his sacrifice, but it's a picture of his ability, uh, the, the gift that he gave us, to reconcile, no matter what, just to reconcile. And it's Jesus that, you know, when you partake of communion, you remember that Jesus reconciled us to the Father, but also, even though we have little wafers that everybody partakes of, yeah. it's supposed to be, like you said, representing one piece of bread. And that's why in the, the disciples, you know, they, 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 uh, 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 Luke tells us that they dedicated themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to uh, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And you think the breaking of bread, didn't they mean the Lord's Supper? No, they meant the breaking of bread. Because whenever they gathered together and they broke bread, if they had something against each other, it was automatically reconciled, and you forget the problem forever. You never bring it up except to your shame. Yeah, so, and we that in, in Corinthians as well, where Paul talks about the breaking of bread, and he says, you know, we're, we're judging another brother, and we're still breaking bread together. That shouldn't be going on. 
That's become. right. We're becoming, we're, we're becoming one with each other. That's right. That's right. And I did this one time. Uh, I do this all over the world, but I did it one time. I remember about 10 years ago in Belfast, Ireland, and it happened to be on York Street at a church, an Anglican church on York Street. Um, York Street uh, is on the docks, basically. It's a major thoroughfare in, in Belfast, but it's where a lot of the troubles, the, you know, the, the Irish conflict, had taken place in the neighborhood just south of York Street in that area. And I got lost in that neighborhood. And I, there's all these, these big paintings and graffiti on the walls. And I'm thinking, yeah, the conflict is still there. It's just not on fire you know, yeah. this time. And, uh, and the people in the church were all locals. And when I got done with all of this, and I showed them this aspect of the broken bread that the disciples would have understood, we treat ceremoniously. They treated it like this is what Jesus is doing. He's reconciling us to the Father through his body. He's reconciling us to each other through his body, through his life. And then we break bread that, that, that brings it all home. We're reconciled to God. We're reconciled to each other. This woman who was sitting at a table when I was all done, she, because uh, we did the dinner, I was walking past her, and she had not moved. She looked kind of like Margaret Thatcher, if you want to picture this woman. Okay. She and she reaches over, and she grabs my arm, and she stops me. And this Irish woman who lived in the neighborhood, who lived through the troubles, she looked up at me, and she said, there's hope, isn't there? And I said, yes, there is. And she said, this is so good to know, because it sunk in. And yet, when we look at communion, communion is just what we do as Christians. And yeah, I did it before and I do it again. But no, you got to think, this is what Jesus put out there to say, remember, this is what I reconciled you to the Father. Rejoice. Yes. But I also am keeping you in a state of reconciliation with each other. With each other. With each other. Boom. There it is. Eating with the enemy, you know. The movie takes it a lot further than that, but there it is. I just it, this is part of their their way of thinking. This is the fascinating journey that we've been on, Jay, and it, it's just looking. I mean, you've been on it for a lot longer than than I have, uh, but it's it's just marveling when you see that uh, that Middle Eastern uh, Jewish understanding of the scriptures. You go, oh, that makes so much more sense. Um, another instance is uh, the woman at the well with the living water. Um, you know, we, we go, okay, living water makes sense springing up from wells within which, you know, which verse is that in? Uh, but again, we're, we're looking at it two, two millennia distance from the event, and we're looking at with this Greek Western mindset, whereas the woman of Samaria knew exactly what he was talking about. That's exactly right. Um, when, uh, because I teach on this subject, um, well, you know, with COVID, everything kind of came to <laughs> yeah. still a couple of years, but, but I teach on it frequently. And, you know, once again, it's getting inside the mindset of the people back then. When I want to bring this out, I love talking about the woman at the well. In fact, it's usually the first thing that I'll talk about. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's an amazing account that we have spiritualized all the meaning out of it, so that it's like diluted down to nothing. It's like watery soup, even though it's got amazing things in it, and you never cease to miss the doctrine. That this is the beauty of it. The richness is just kind of been forgotten. Yeah. Um, what happened with Jesus, uh, you know, meeting the woman at the well? He's in Samaria, so he's where uh, a rabbi shouldn't be. Yes. He, 
sits on a well. A well cap looks like a millstone tipped on its side with a hole in the top. And then they put a smaller rock over the top. This particular well happens to be extremely deep. It still exists today. It's under a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, this is probably 99% sure it's the right one. And it's in a place called Nablus today. So it's, it's difficult to get to for most Westerners. But if you go into the church, they demonstrate how deep the well is. And they take a cup of water and they pour it in the well and they just go, okay, you ready? And start counting. You pour the water, one, two, three, four, five, splash. I mean, that's a deep well because they can't put rocks in there. It'll fill up with people dumping rocks in. So Jesus sits down on this, on this, it looks like a huge millstone, but it works as a table. It works as a place to sit. It works as a workspace. Here comes this Samaritan woman. The disciples are gone. And she you know, he's, he, 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 she's not, he's not supposed to talk to a woman, especially a woman alone. He's not supposed to engage with a Samaritan in any way, shape, or form. So Jesus breaks all man's rules. I love it when he does that. And, and yeah. I like the fact that you said man's rules, because th- th- this isn't, this, he's not breaking Torah. He's just breaking he's Breaking tradition and traditions. Some traditions are very good, and some of them just build walls. He breaks these rules. And he says, give me a drink. Now, to share a drink or to receive a drink, water or wine or anything else from another person, well, the person handing it to you is giving you an act of hospitality, even if you requested it, because it means when you hand them water, you're handing them something incredibly precious because it's rare in the Middle East. It's precious in the Middle East. So you're handing him water, and it says uh, that you are welcome with me. Well, you don't do that, not with a Samaritan woman, and she's not going to do it to him. She says, who are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan woman, two things, two problems there. The third problem, he's a Jew, for a drink. And he said, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. What Jesus just did there is he baited her. You mean Jesus was into clickbait? Oh, <laughs> yes, he's baiting her for sure. So, so I'll ask a whole audience of pastors. I'll say, tell me, what is living water? And all these hands go up or people start shouting out. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the scripture. It's Jesus. It's the, you know, it's the gospel. And the, all these different things, sometimes combinations of the above. Is that true? It is true. And spiritually, it's true. You could say, well, I can make the argument for it, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I ask somebody back then, like that woman, what is living water? Only one thing comes to mind, moving water. Living water is King James English, you know, 500-year-old Elizabethan English term for moving water. So water that had to be uh, used in mikvahs for for cleansing ourselves from from that that leftover um, dredge of sin, the, the living water. Exactly. Living water was moving water, which meant it was clean, it was pure, it was health-promoting, it was life-giving. It would be characterized by an artesian well, spring up a well within my soul, right? Yeah. So it's really like an artesian well. A waterfall, a babbling brook, uh, rain would be considered living water. A river would be considered living water. Uh, so any of that captured and put in a mikvah, would be considered living water because it was started out as pure. And there were, of course, because it was a tradition, there were technicalities attached to it, which are not in the Torah. But, you know, they, they had to say, use your imagination in this. But with her, see, her problem is she's got a well. She, she notes to with Jesus, the well is deep. You don't have a bucket, which would be a leather bag, to draw with. 
uh, you know, so, but you know where there's living water. This is the bait because Jesus knows that going to this well is drudgery. Wells get contaminated like cisterns. Cisterns have contaminated water in it. So people will drink it, but they have to put wine in it in order to somehow sterilize it because they know that wine did something to the water to purify it. They didn't understand bacteria, but they knew that much. Um, they would, uh, you know, they're just trying to purify that sort of thing was, was difficult to do. But living water was always considered drinkable. I used to do a lot of backpacking back in the day when, and it was a time when things weren't quite as polluted as they were when I'd go up in the high Sierras and you just stick your face into a stream and drink because it was so pure. That's the effect that she's looking for. And she says, wait a second. Our ancestor, Jacob, dug this well for a reason. This I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the argument that she makes, that this is here for a reason. There is no living water around here. Jesus says, I know where there is some. So she, the, as you follow the conversation, again, I'm leaving a lot out. She finally says, all right, show me. So she's asking Jesus, take, so, so that I don't have to keep coming to this well, I would prefer to have living water. It's pure. Show me where it is. With, with so, this, hidden, this hidden streamers that you know about that nobody else does. Right. And, and she's incredulous because it's like, and we've been around here all these centuries. Nobody knows where this thing is. Come on, Jesus. Like, all right, show me. She calls his bluff. And then the conversation ensues from there. Jesus says, uh, go back and get your husband and so forth. Now, uh, that's how he got her attention with that living water. But living water is, I want to go back to it, it's health-promoting, life-giving, pure, uh, refreshing. Refreshing is really the operative word here because well water was not refreshing. Cistern water was not refreshing. Lake water was not considered refreshing. But it's, it's refreshing. Now, you skip ahead to where Jesus goes to Sukkot. And on the last great day of the feast, you know the tradition, yeah. where the feast up on top with everybody singing and cheering and dancing and feasting, and, and the, the giant menorahs lighting up the, the Temple Mount. He takes a pitcher and runs down the Pilgrim's Road all the way to the bottom of the city of David, down to the point where the Siloam Pool is, which is a giant mikveh and a reservoir. Water flows in, water flows out, mikveh. And he scoops up living water. And he runs it back up to the top of the Temple Mount. Uh, I, I, that's like a 400-foot climb. This guy's got to have great legs. He gets up there, and then in, on a platform, so everybody can see in front of all the people, he pours it out. Water coming from the rock, as Moses had spoken to the rock and later smote it a couple of times and all of that. So, um, or, or smote the rock, rather. I'll get it right. Sorry. Um I think I need another cup of coffee. Anyway, he, uh, you know, see, he smote the rock, smote it twice, supposed to speak to it. But living water came out of that rock. It wasn't like a cistern or something. It was living water. It was living water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he pours this out, and then everybody's cheering, and Jesus stands up, and he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Yeah. And out of him will flow, flow torrents of living water. The effect of Jesus, of you, you know, someone taking Jesus as Messiah. Here's Yeshua HaMashiach, taking him as Messiah. He is the Messiah. The effect will be out of you will flow gushing torrents, rivers, living water. What is living water? It's refreshing. And when we talk about living water, when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, well, what is being, you know, what's living water? It's like the Holy Spirit. Here, Jesus kind of affirms it. And he, John even says, for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. 
So he's referring to the Holy Spirit for sure. But what is the effect that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, and John is trying to communicate to all his readers, about if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? Yeah. Not, not what does it feel like. From a, from a sales point of view, um, it, and, and I say to so many people, because I used to be in sales years ago, there are two terms that we use. One is features and one is benefits. Mm-hmm. You don't sell features. You sell benefits. Right. right. And in, in this instance, the feature is that wells of living water will flow out of you. Yeah. Which you go, so what? It's the benefits. It's the refreshing, the restoring, the the things that you've just mentioned. That's what he's referencing when he's talking about the living water flowing out. Yes. And take it a step further. Remember, every spiritual gift that we have that that is given, that's listed in the Bible, and there's like 17 or 18 of them, and there's more that we could probably speculate on. Yeah. But every single one of those gifts, not one of them, is for me. It's all from me to you. It's like God hands you a package. It's beautifully wrapped. I think I used to talk to you about this last time. We talked about it. And he drops it in your lap, and he says, here, this is your spiritual gift. And you say, great. You start to rip it open, and he says, no, read the label. And the label has somebody else's name on it. He says, I want you to give it to them. But with the torrents of living water, it's not for me. It's for others to drink of. What is a spirit-filled Christian like? No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in their lives or the lives of the people around them, to be around a spirit-filled Christian is to be refreshed because they are refreshing people. And this takes you over to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3, and you've got Jesus rebuking the Laodiceans for being hot, cold, lukewarm. That whole scenario right there, when I asked that of pastors, what does it mean? We're hot, on fire for the Lord, cold, your faith is out. Lukewarm, you're in the middle, one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, and you're unstable and all of that. That's a great 20th, 21st century illustration. That has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. Is it true? Sure, it's true, but it's not what he was saying there. It's our interpretation of it, yeah. yeah. Because the near Laodicea was a city called Heropolis, which is characterized today by a city called Pamukkale, which is there. It's got hot springs, a mile wide, this crack in the earth with all of these this hot water flowing out. And it was known for the, uh, being a, an amazing health spa back in the Roman era. It's only seven miles from Laodicea. Laodicea far wealthier than Heropolis, and they wanted their own hot water, so they piped it in via aqueducts. Aqueducts are not open to the air. They have pipes going through them so that the water, once it starts to heat up, the pipe stays hot when it arrives at Laodicea, and they put it in their their gymnasiums and, and what have you, and people can partake of it. But the hot water was always considered to the Laodiceans not hot on fire bubbling for God. It was therapeutic. It's good for you. Yes. So living water, and this is hot living water, it's good for you. You get around ther- the hot water, and you're going to be healthier for it. Or the cold. We say, well, that's your faith is out cold. Uh-uh. They had another aqueduct that came in from the Taurus Mountains just behind Colossi, which they're about to start excavating, by the way. This is very exciting news. Ah. And they ran a 12-mile aqueduct from that branch of the Lycus River, which comes right by Colossae, and brought it into Laodicea, and of course, running through the pipes year after year after year, they, it cools it down, it keeps it insulated, and what came out in, in Laodicea, really freezing cold snow melt water because of the, the glaciers up above Colossae. 
And that, so they would love it. And they put it in their gymnasiums. And if you've ever been to a health spa, you have your, your jacuzzis, your, your hot pools, and then you jump into a cold plunge. And it's like, whoa, it's refreshing. It's marvelous and all of that. Plus, you can drink that water if it's coming out of a pipe and what have you. So the hot was therapeutic. And that's the Holy Spirit around a spirit-filled Christian. What are we to be to other people? They're better for it that we've been there, even if they hate us, even if they don't like what we bring. The people are healthier for it, better for pagans, atheists, Christians especially. We start with the church because it's it's the you know the house of God's people. We start there and work our way out. But then the refreshing, the cold water. But when it's when it came out lukewarm, when the hot water cooled down and the cool water warmed up in Laodicea, you could taste all the impurities. Yeah. And that's what Jesus was tasting. You're not good for anybody, and you're not refreshing for anybody. But the message of the, of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work through us, when we think of it like that, we say that gives us a measurement to say, what is a Spirit-filled Christian like? Not to judge others, but to say, am I refreshing to others by being around them? Because I know a lot of Christians that seem to gush lemon juice, yeah. prune juice, something else, but not cold, refreshing water or that hot therapeutic water that when I'm around other people, now that I've spent time with them and like I'm spending time with you, hopefully the people listening will be better off, strengthened, encouraged, healthier as Christians by the time we're done talking, the work of the Holy Spirit and it's living water. There it is. Yeah. We have, uh, where I live, there are uh, hot springs, but they're, they're not known as hot springs to the locals. They're known as tepid springs. It's sort of like, you remember when you were growing up, if you had older brothers and you were the third or fourth one to get into the bath? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, I go, give me a hot pool or give me a cold pool. I will swim happily in a cold pool. I will relax happily in a hot pool, but a mediocre, tepid pool, uh, you know, and it gets to the point where, you know, sometimes my wife will say, well, should we go up to such, you know, up to the springs? And I'm going, no, I really don't want to. You know, and, and as Christians, if we're lukewarm at Laodicean church, others are looking, you know, do you want to go and see Rob? Yeah, no, I really don't want to. Uh, and we shouldn't be like that. But, I mean, that's great, Jay, because that's opened up that understanding of it I haven't seen before. So I thank you for that. Um, I find it just spectacular because the Lord keeps it simple. He doesn't say, well, now you have to figure out what living water is. And it's this big pink cloud abstraction. He puts feet on it. It's on the ground right where you can reach and say, so that's what it's like to be a spirit-filled Christian. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's what the Spirit brings through me into the life of others. And no matter what the gift is that you do, others are refreshed by it, even if they hate you. Others are, are strengthened by it. Uh, 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 again, therapeutic, that effect to your spirit or to your life because God did something through me and you're better for it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made it incredibly understandable so that illiterate children, even, and again, back in those days, women were mostly, you know, like 99% illiterate, even though the literacy rate among the Hebrews was the highest in the world at about 8%. And people that weren't literate, that were just shepherds out there, they could understand that. They didn't have to abstract it and they didn't need a theologian to tell them. And it's all about the flowing because, you know, we, we know that the water, you put hot water in a bath and uh, leave it for an hour. What's it like? It's not hot anymore. It's, yeah. it's, it's the flowing water flowing through me, as you said, to others, the gifts 
to come through me for the benefit of others. And, and I'm refreshed and I'm energized through all of that. It's not contaminated. It's not stagnant. Yeah, yeah. Jay, this has been great. I'm going to put the uh, the uh, links there for your uh, movies uh, in our description. And uh, you and I are going to have to talk again. All right. Marvelous. God bless you.